You're listening to The Commons Podcast. For more information on events, serving opportunities, financial giving, and community groups, visit flagstaffcommons.com. Hello, Commons family, and welcome to another online service. Two weeks in a row, unexpected, but we are grateful, as always, for the technology to be able to do this, uh, to be safe for everybody. We're going to pray for another church in town, as we always do, and today we're going to pray for the Episcopal Church of the Epiphany here in Flagstaff. Dear friends of ours, as most of you know, we share a youth group with the Episcopal Church in Trinity Heights and even Federated Community, the Flagstaff Youth Co-op, so we love uh, praying for our beloved siblings that meet at the Episcopal Church. So if you're the praying type, join me and we're going to lift them up today. Lord, we're grateful, so thankful for the long and rich history of the Episcopal Church and uh, here in this town and also in this country and their roots, um, even in England. Lord, we're thankful for a group of people who truly live out that um, everyone is welcome. We thank you that we share that in common with them. Um, and we love them and all that they do in our community. We ask you to bless our youth group and our shared mission together and also all that they do. Um, We're so grateful for their hearts, for justice and love. Bless them with your presence. And Lord, today as we continue to look at Galatians, would you open up our hearts and minds for what you might have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, as you know, hopefully, for if you watched last week, we canceled church because of a staff COVID outbreak, but it's uh, specifically me. I actually have COVID-19, and I'm recording this on Wednesday, so it's a technology time warp to you that are watching it on Sunday or maybe even after that. I tested positive last night, and so you might hear a raspiness in my voice. Uh, actually, all six members of my family were all vaccinated and we have all got COVID-19. We're doing okay. I got lots of encouraging texts and support from the community, which I appreciate. Um, Most of us have had symptoms. My youngest, Blaze, was pretty sick and has been coughing and trouble breathing. He's doing better now. Uh, We're grateful for the technology of vaccines. We think that's helped us not be as sick as we could have been. But um, I just want to share that with you for a couple reasons. One, informationally, um, the Omicron variant is serious, as you know, and it's everywhere. It is spreading like wildfire. It's one of the fastest spreading uh, versions of COVID. Of course, we still hold out hope, like I mentioned last week, that it's a less severe version. But I can tell you, having had it, it's uh, more severe than I expected, uh, even being vaccinated. So I, I do encourage you all. Uh, knowing that probably most of us are going to get infected with this, uh, no matter how careful we are, we still don't want to overwhelm our hero healthcare workers. Um, and so that everything we can do to flatten the curve, our leadership team at the church believes is the most loving thing that we can do um, is to not meet this weekend as well. And also just keep gaining information and we're going to reconvene as a leadership team. And we're always going to make a decision that we think is in the best interest of public health and safety of our kids and and those kinds of things. Um, Having COVID-19 has made me reflect a little bit on uh, the bizarre and traumatic couple of years that we've been in a global pandemic. I'm sure from time to time, uh, like me, many of you, stop and reflect on how strange this has been, quarantining back in 2020 as we all did and shutting the world down and going back and forth with different variants. Uh, It's a lot to process. And I've been thinking about it from a church perspective, not just the safety issue and how do we make decisions and how do we continue to have community in these bizarre times. But um, I do think it's important to think about um, some sort of deeper meaning to things like pandemics. One of the positives that I've drawn from this is the pandemic, I think, clearly helps us think about 
that we really all belong to each other. Um, the choices that I make affect you and the choices that you make affect me. And so I could rush to Walgreens and buy every single um, rapid test that I could, but then you won't have those rapid tests or I could uh, clean the uh, shelves of toilet paper like happened in 2020. But our selfishness then hurts the whole and we're all in this together. If we don't stop this together, um, we're going to have a long battle ahead of us. Of course, there's a lot of hope scientifically. We really do hope that this variant will give some sort of larger scale herd immunity and, and less severity and death, although I, I'm afraid there's still going to be a, a lot of hospitalizations and death that come from this. But we want to be people of love and kindness and think about the way that our faith affects the way we face a pandemic and uh, get through it together. That unity and that peace is something that I think makes good religion and uh, the best version of church worthwhile. It's the thing that keeps us coming back together, I think, a lot. Uh, if you watched last week, we began a new discussion on the book of Galatians and unity and uh, all belonging to each other is certainly a central theme that Paul talks about to these churches in Galatia. If you want a thorough background and context of the letters to the churches of Galatia, I would encourage you to go back and watch last week's sermon. I went a little bit more in depth as to who the people were that Paul was writing to 2,000 years ago. In Galatia. I'll give you a microcosm context today, but I don't want to spend too much time on that. And then we're going to keep trucking through Galatians 2 so we can kind of get through this great ancient transformative work together. Um, again, the people were diverse. Uh, the Galatia was a region of ancient, what is now modern day Turkey was called Galatia at the time. And there were several cities in the south of Galatia that Paul probably visited on his missionary journeys that were described in the book of Acts. And the people there were groups of Roman soldiers and Gauls, where the name Galatia comes from, which were a proto-Celtic barbarian tribal people, which was a huge part of the ethnic make group of, uh, makeup of the Galatian area. And also Jewish people in diaspora spread out from their home in Jerusalem, along with other very myriad different groups of ethnicities because of its location between Asia and Europe, as Turkey beautifully is between these two continents on the Silk Road of travel and commerce. And then you had layered on top of that the, the Roman influence of the Roman Empire. And that was the kind of American feel of the day. There was this empire that actually most of the people seemed to be very proud of. They wanted to be Roman citizens, even in all of their diversity. And we talked a lot last week about the complex layers of what it meant to be a Jewish person in the Roman Empire, having special religious exemptions and how that affected what Paul was writing about. But one of the things that we came across in chapter one last week was Paul was certainly defensive. I, I mentioned he came in white hot, um, trying to defend himself as an apostle, because what we can get from behind the text, what we can assume is that there were these people who were saying bad things about Paul. They were trying to put him down because they wanted to retain that Jewish specialness that the Roman Empire had given, and they were worried about losing that. It's a very reasonable thing to be worried about. If they opened up this kingdom of God to everyone, it might ruin their specialness in the empire and their safety within the empire. So it wasn't unreasonable at all. And those people were criticizing Paul because he was including everyone. And, and often throughout the book of Galatia, it comes up today in chapter two, circumcision is the physical and also metaphorical representation of this. 
And I sort of love this um, kind of awkward topic of uh, cutting off a male's foreskin because it represents a lot more than that. It seems so strange to us that that would be a big theological issue. It seems like a, a medical issue that people would argue about today or, or wrestle with perhaps, and not something that represents the way we encounter God or the divine. But in the early church, that was a, a marker of identity. That was your Jewishness. And so what was really at question here was less about the flesh, more about the metaphor of who we are and how big is God and how big is the kingdom of God. I'm not going to read all of chapter 2. Um, the beginning of chapter 2 is Paul describing in great detail going back to Jerusalem. He's basically um, earning the right to be heard. He's explaining to these churches that, that this gospel message, this kind of political good news that he's challenging Augustus and the Caesar's good news with, it's the real deal. And he was wanting to have credibility by saying that when he went to Jerusalem and met with the big pillars of the early church, these very Jewish leaders like Peter and James, the very brother of Jesus, he wanted to let them know that they were all about his gospel, his good news, and they affirmed him. In fact, I'll just read one section of that beginning part where he gets to the end. Uh, this is going to be starting in verse chapter, I mean, ver verse number nine. He says, James, Cephas, which is Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I had been eager to do all along. I love this little historical note in this letter to these churches because he's talking about a real trip that he had. He's talking about going to the big conference in Jerusalem and the big wigs of the early church and their rootedness and Jewishness and saying, hey, those guys affirmed, they extended the right hand of fellowship and said that we should proclaim this gospel. It should get bigger. James, the very brother of Jesus and Peter agreed that Christ was getting bigger and church was for everyone and that should include non-Jewish people and they sent um, Paul and Barnabas on their way. Now, here's what I love. The one thing that he mentioned is that they were to take care of the poor. I mentioned last week that one of the problems with understanding the book of Galatians is that often we can't help escape having been sort of brainwashed or without even knowing it influenced by what thinkers between Paul and us in these 2,000 years have said about what this book is about. I'm thinking of Augustine in the fourth century. I'm thinking of Anselm in the 1300s of Canterbury. I'm, I'm thinking of Luther and Calvin in the Reformation in the 1600s. These thinkers made the entire book of Galatians about personal, individual salvation and escaping purgatory to go to heaven, whereas that's just not the questions Paul was talking about. And I just wanted to give a little evidence here that when Paul talks about going to Jerusalem, trying to give himself credibility, the only thing he mentioned that represented what this good news is to the world is that they take care of the poor. And he said, that's the very thing I was eager to do. How many of us growing up in American churches, when someone asks what the gospel is, the response is to take care of the poor? I feel like I didn't learn that growing up. I learned a gospel that I'd, I'm not mad at. I, I'm thankful that I learned about sin and forgiveness and being restored to a relationship with God. But I think I learned that at, the, at a high cost of missing what is to me the most obvious and apparent clear message of Jesus of Nazareth about loving of enemy and taking care of poor and giving things away and calling out rich and lifting up real power dynamics and politics of the day that matter. And I think Paul was talking about the same thing. This gospel, this way of being in the world, one of the core tenets is to take care of the poor. Um, I also wanted to use that to go on a little side tangent. Um, every year in the last few years, we've taken the opportunity of this particular Sunday of honoring um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, definitely a theological hero of mine, and I've loved that we've done that. I would encourage you to go 
go back if you're really interested. Uh, the last couple of years, we've done full sermons on uh, MLK because MLK Day for you guys watching on Sunday will be tomorrow. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because one of the things that happens to Martin Luther King Jr. is his message also gets watered down. And I'm going to use this as an analogy. Martin Luther King Jr. was a brilliant PhD student, a civil rights activist, an incredible thinker. Obviously, we know and celebrate the gift of Martin Luther King's voice in the civil rights movement. But often what happens is the radical nature, uh, the real message of Martin Luther King Jr. in his whole entire work of message was about fighting not just racism, but also poverty and violence in war. He was very critical of the Vietnam War, but on Martin Luther King Day tomorrow, I bet you won't see a lot of people on their Instagram or Facebook posts quoting his radical messages that were anti-war or his radical anti-poverty missions. But why I think that's important is because Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. understood that the gospel also at its centerpiece and core was about fighting poverty instead of fighting the poor. We live in a country that fights the poor instead of fighting poverty. And I want to just, on a side tangent, draw our hearts and our attention to, to go revisit the works of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I hope that you go back or do your own research and learn some of the really radical and I think true gospel messages of, of that great leader. I just wanted to use that poor section as a, a launching point because it that message was true universally 2,000 years ago and it's still true today and it's still part of the gospel. Um, And I think that should transform the way we think about a lot of things. But coming back to this, the next section of Galatians 2, which I'm just going to kind of paraphrase over, is kind of um, almost humorous to me in a way. It's a long extended section of this letter where Paul describes getting into a conflict with Peter. And I always think it's kind of funny because I believe that Paul didn't know he was writing a book of the Bible when he was writing this letter. I do think he he knew it was important and even I would use the word inspired and that churches would circulate it as truth. But I think it's kind of funny because sometimes when we have a conflict with somebody and we call them out or maybe even call them out publicly, very rarely does it end up in a text like the Bible that lasts for 2,000 years. So sometimes I just feel sorry for Peter getting called out publicly because I've been hypocritical myself and made mistakes, and I would hate for that to be logged in the in the history of humankind in something like the Bible. But here's the conflict that Paul and Peter had. I think it it is something that we can mine something of value from. Uh, this fight was all about something that I think is very human and intuitive even to children. I think one of the things that we can't stand as human beings, and rightly so, is inauthenticity or fraudulent behavior. And basically what happened is Peter came and visited Antioch, which is one of the churches in Galatia. And Peter, as Paul has already shown, was fully in support of a church for everyone where Gentiles were included. And apparently what happened, according to Paul, is Peter was hanging out with Gentiles, eating with them, which used to be forbidden in his Jewish way of thinking before, but he was expanding his faith. He was large enlarging Christ in him to where he was realizing he could have fellowship with non-Jewish people. But when really important people from Jerusalem came to Antioch to visit, all of a sudden Peter acted like he wasn't doing that anymore because there was too much at risk. Maybe he didn't want conflict. Maybe he didn't want to upset people. But at the end of the day, what he was doing was being inauthentic and fraudulent. And I think this happens a lot. I'm glad that Paul called it out. I do think it's a little over the top that Peter is infamous forever uh, because of his hypocrisy. But I think this happens all the time. I know that it happened in the civil rights day or in the slavery day. There were Christian people who knew 
that God abhors, abhors and hates racism. And there were Christian white people in the South and in the North who knew that and would hang out with their beloved black sisters and brothers until somebody who was racist or important came around and they didn't have the courage to show that relationship anymore. And I could imagine someone back then being pretty fiery if they saw that kind of hypocrisy. I think it happens today. Um, you know, being an affirming church of the LGBTQI plus community, I personally know pastors who are secretly affirming of the LGBT community, but they know that if they speak up, it'll cost them their job or it'll cause great conflict. And they even have relationships with our wonderful, God-filled LGBTQI siblings. And yet, in certain circles, they act like they don't have those relationships anymore. That kind of hypocrisy is universally gross and weird. And it takes a sort of courage and strength that I think is tied to the divine and Christ in us to take a risk, even if it might cause conflict, to take these values that are the most central, that every beating heart belongs in the loving hand and embrace of God and full equality. We have to have that courage today. We've always had to have that courage. And I'm glad that Paul called out Peter in that particular fight. But I want to skip down and I just want to focus on one famous verse from chapter two that I think you've already seen in this video with uh, what we were showing a little montage of earlier. And this is, comes at the very end of chapter two, at least it's how it's divided today. And I want to focus because it's going to introduce us to one thought, one idea that I really want us to kind of be our so what that we carry forward today. This is verse 19. And, and I just want to give you a little context. He's just been talking about the concept of the law. And it's really hard to read that section and not be really influenced by Luther talking about works versus faith because that language is in there. But for Paul, and for me anyway, I, I think it's important to think about when he talks about the law, he's also talking about something really, really human. The desire that we have psychoanalytically to earn worth. Um, all of law is based on this, especially when you study anthropologically religious law. Um, humans developed early on a need to make things right with the gods uh, in their agricultural society. And it might take sacrifice, or it might take more specifically in a development of, of humanity, following a set of codes or rules that if we do it good enough, the gods will be pleased with us and good fortune and blessings will happen. That was part of the Jewish story, like so many other tribal beautiful stories before around the world and different cultural flavors and forms. And Paul's using it here saying, we don't wanna throw out the idea of ethics and law because there's a sense in which it's good because it reveals to us the ways in which we can never fully be whole alone. There's a goodness to it in that way. He was much less interested, again, in this medieval question of a person's individual soul going to heaven someday, and he was way more interested in a way of being that was exploding around the Mediterranean of serving the poor, loving other people, and most importantly here, and this is tied to the teachings of Jesus, so in line with Paul's theology of Jesus, dying to self so that we can be resurrected or made alive. This is what he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And here's one of the most famous verses in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And for Paul, of course, Christ didn't die for nothing because he believed the death of Christ 
was universal or cosmic. And sometimes those words can be a little bit um, intimidating or feel hippy-dippy or something because you think of maybe Sedona, New Age, universal or cosmic ray or something like that. But I think the words are worth looking at because they're powerful. When, when something is universal, I think about a universal law like gravity or maybe even something more powerful um, and a little harder to grasp like the universal law of love. Most of us think that there is this universal truth of love and connection. That's the sense in which we use the term a universal Christ. It's Christ getting bigger so big in fact that Christ infuses all of matter, all of atoms, all of galaxies, everything is infused with Christ because Christ is universal and big. And the same idea of cosmic. Cosmic comes from this Greek word cosmo, which means world of the world, tangible, physical stuff. And this is the thing that I think we have to redeem in Christianity so constantly over and over again is how tangible and physical the love of God is. Um, I love that after he says that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, he says the life I now live in the body. And this is so important because this is the embodied Christ. And so when I think today of a conversation starter for our community and the gift of this ancient letter, I want to just focus on these couple of phrases here. Sometimes it helps me, especially when you read a long theological treatise that has like uh, some drama between Peter and Paul and his credentials in Jerusalem and, and then these theological ideas. Sometimes it's easy to get a little lost in the weed. But one of the gifts to me of the art of Scripture when we look at it and can twist it around like a prism and see it in different angles, is to sometimes take a simple phrase or a simple truth and sit with it or meditate on it. One of the things that Paul of Tarsus did as an author um, that was hard for me to see for a long time is he constantly used the phrase Christ in us. Here he's saying, I'm crucified in Christ, and he's actually spelling it out. And now the life I live in the body is Christ in me. Christ in me is one of the most um, recurring phrases of Paul in all of his letters. And I think it's one that's worth stopping and meditating on and having a discussion on and, and letting be our sort of uh, whole conversation today. First of all, do you believe Christ is in you? What does that even mean? To me, Christ is, is a hard word because it's become Jesus' last name, and it loses a little bit of its historical context of being, at one point, a political hope. Christ means the chosen one or the anointed one, and another word for it is Messiah. And that idea was a great hope before Jesus of Nazareth came. And then once there was people who decided Jesus was exactly that, their hope and fulfillment of God incarnate, God's own arm working salvation, not for individuals, but for the entire cosmos, a universal salvation, all of a sudden the idea of Christ is not just this one person in pinpoint in time, but Christ understood, that it, Paul understood it's Christ in us and in our bodies. Um, I sometimes think if you just touch your face and think all of those atoms are infused with a, a sort of gravity and quantum mechanics that have, as we mentioned in the, in the video leading up to this, a cruciform nature in them is very death and resurrection itself. The particles of our skin, the physical beings that we have are infused with God. Um, sometimes that's hard to believe and it's hard to feel. I think that central to the message of Christ that Paul was carrying forth in this early movement 
is this idea of being crucified in Christ. It's aligning with nature, as you saw in the video, the way leaves die and become the very soil that trees grow out of. Um, our, our solar system came from an exploded star and the material that recoalesced. Stars die and are reborn. Um, seeds die, as Jesus talked about, it, and they're reborn and they grow. And there's this cycle of death and resurrection that requires the crucifixion part. So for me, what that means is a selfless way of living. And there's a couple things that I want to call out here. One is easy. Often at the commons, I've been very critical of a, a version of, a, of Christianity that exists in America that is more fraudulent, um, that is more focused on somehow rich people feeling good about themselves and not really living a life that's Christ-like whatsoever. That's kind of honestly easy to call out. But, you know, sometimes I don't call out, uh, there's another example that happens on the non-religious or maybe the more liberal side. I've known people who have been, um, I have to be really careful here because everybody's story and journey is so important and sacred and um, different. And I know dear friends in our community who have been so hurt and wounded by the church that they could never go back to the organized church. And I understand that. I believe God understands that. And God is bigger than that and, and can meet them. And they can live a life that's so filled with death and, death and resurrection and love bursting out of them like live, rivers of living water and live the same universal and cosmic Christ experience. But I've also seen people who have been annoyed at the church and, and left and have become honestly almost a worse version of the thing they critique in conservative, annoying um, versions of inauthentic Christianity um, and, and become selfish. I know people who are very critical of the evangelical church and they leave it behind and then live a life of not serving the poor at all and some that do. And what I want to draw our attention back to is what is the truth? What is the universal connective thing? If we all belong to each other, if we've learned that from this pandemic, if Paul's right that church is for everyone, Christ is for everyone, and there's this universal cosmic element what is that gospel? I believe it's love. I believe in the center of science, at the essence of the way the universe works, from gravitational forces pulling to the love in our hearts for our children. I believe that there is this connective love, and we have to get in line with that natural rhythm. The book of nature, God's first work of creation, that teaches us that selfishness will only lead into this violent cycle that it always does versus a selflessness and a letting go of crucified in Christ so that Christ lives in me. I think all of us um, see it on a daily basis, what it looks like when Christ in someone is just glowing and radiant and brilliant. We've all been loved at that moment when we need the most love. We've all seen someone do that selfless act, or we've all seen someone do the opposite of what Peter did in Antioch that day. We see those that stand up with courage, like MLK Jr. all those years ago, and great leaders of the civil rights movement today, or those that advocate for the LGBT community, or those that serve for the poor, or fight against child slavery, or stand up for life and rights and love. That's the universal Christ glowing in our hearts. So I want to encourage us to think about being crucified in Christ in this universal sense, not in this personal salvation sense, and what that means for us as a community and uh, as families and in all of our relationships. We're going to share the communion table right now, as we always do. So if you want to pause the video or not, or grab anything, cracker bread, anything that would work in this strange time that we have, I'm going to pray over these elements. And as always, we're going to have uh, some artful music that we can uh, focus our minds. And today I would like you to focus on this idea of Christ in me and in my body. 
um, especially as we take Christ into our body. This is an ancient theological tradition of, of all different denominations of the church that we take Christ in us. And what does that mean? That our atoms are infused um, with God, with the divine. I think it can be really transformative. Let me pray and we'll share this time together. God, I'm grateful for our community. I'm grateful uh, for Paul's words so long ago. We humbly ask you, Lord, to speak and make these uh, living texts for us in the conversations we have with you in our hearts now and with each other, uh, and we sit in our homes or we reach out one to the other, and I pray that you connect us, Lord. I do believe we belong to each other, and I believe that is a true universal Christ truth, Lord, that we're ultimately all infused with your grace and love. And Lord, I pray that that transforms us as we receive today the forgiveness of sins. Let it become forgiveness that we pour unto others. As we receive today Christ in us, Lord, let that be a shining light uh, that's so transformative for us and all that we touch. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.